Welcome to Season 2 of Forged in Fire, where we explore LGBTQ plus leadership with guests from all over the world. You'll hear as they share how they navigated their journey through crucible experiences to develop into amazing leaders. Forged in Fire is hosted by Colonel Bree Fram and Dr. Liz Cavallero. Hi, I'm Bree Fram, an astronautical engineer in the U.S. Space Force. I'm passionate about building the leaders of tomorrow and learning about what the LGBTQ plus leaders of today can teach us. And I'm Dr. Liz Cavallero. I'm an adult development scholar and associate professor at the U.S. Naval War College. I'm also an experienced researcher, interviewer, leader development practitioner, and professional executive coach. Please join us as we discover the inspiring stories of how LGBTQ plus leaders are forged. Welcome to another episode of Forged in Fire. Dr. A.C. Folks joins us today. We're honored to have him as he is a transgender man and clinical psychologist who brings a unique blend of lived experience and professional expertise to his work as CEO of Folks Consulting, an LGBTQ sensitivity and transgender inclusion firm. Dr. Folk's career spans diverse sectors, from finance to prisons and psychiatric hospitals, where he was the first out black transgender man to lead a psychiatric facility in the United States. He's helped individuals and organizations create inclusive and equitable environments. As a Forbes contributor and member of the Trevor Project Board, he educates and advocates for the LGBTQ community. His book, Transgender Inclusion, all the things you want to ask your transgender coworker but shouldn't, released in January 2024 and offers insightful guidance and dispels harmful misconceptions. AC's story is one of overcoming adversity, breaking barriers, and using his expertise to make the world a more inclusive and accepting place. AC, we're so thankful you could join us today. I am so glad to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Well, as you know, we talk about leadership and leadership development on this show, and you have had quite a journey. So we want to start by talking about how you developed into the leader you are, and then talk about some of the things that are in your book and why that is such a valuable resource. But going back to the beginning, you grew up in a deeply religious family and talked about the fact that you struggled with internalized homophobia and transphobia. And you even said, it may sound like it's over, but it's still an everyday thing that you go through. Can you tell us a little bit about that journey in a family and the coming out to yourself process? What did that look like for you? And what did that help you build as a skill that you still use today? Yes. So I grew up in a deeply religious household. Both of my parents actually are pastors. So I'm a, I'm a pastor's kid. Um, and so I, I grew up in an environment where uh, being anything other than cisgender, heterosexual was just not an option. Uh, certainly not a viable option. Um, and I grew up in an environment where it was the type of thing where people would actually uh, have the demon of homosexuality cast out of them. Um, I grew up in that type of environment. And so it, it wasn't just we don't accept it, but there was a certain amount of fervor. It was a, it was a, a repulsion. It was this is evil. 
And so growing up in that environment, it was really difficult for me to reconcile myself with my own identity. And I struggled a great deal with internalized homophobia and transphobia. And I bring both of those things up because I'm not only a transgender man, but I am an omnisexual man. And um, I struggled with both of those identities, um, for sure. In terms of who I am today, the process that I went through um, of coming to accept myself I was so fortunate to have mentors in my life and people in my life that were affirming and accepting so that even when I didn't get that from my family in the, in the beginning, anyway, I had people that said, you're not broken, right? You don't need to be fixed. You don't need to be healed. You don't need to be delivered. You're not broken. Um, and so I, I, you know, I, I was fortunate in that regard and not everyone has access to that. And I think to the extent that I can show up and be that for people, it's important for me to show up and be that for people. But it was through that process. I went through, I, I mean, I had a crisis of faith. I grew up in a deeply religious household. I, I was, uh, you know, I grew up Christian and then, and then I was agnostic and then I was atheist and then I was Christian again. And then I was like, yeah, no, I, actually now I identify as a yogi. I, you know, I'm, I'm still kind of on this journey to figuring it all out. Um, but yeah, but my, my process was definitely one that it had to start with self-acceptance because my family wasn't quite there yet. I'm so fortunate to be able to say now that both of my parents have come um, along and have accepted me and embraced me and loved me. Um, it took some time. It, it took some time and it, and it took some education and it still takes education. And there's, there's still slip ups and there's still things that they don't quite understand, but they're trying and they're putting forth uh, an honest effort. And I think that that's what matters most kind of at this juncture in my life. And so uh, I'm fortunate in that way. I think all of that impacts me as a leader and that I'm very sensitive to um, identity and the ability for folks to safely self-identify and to be able to experience change and transformation in that journey, right? So for me, I didn't always identify as a transgender man that is omnisexual, right? That is the that is the most recent iteration of myself. It did not at all start that way, right? Um, and so I have had safety in that process of growth and evolution. And as a leader, I try to make sure that I provide that safety for others. Thank you so much for sharing that. And we will certainly ask several more questions about how you enact that in your leadership. Um, but one thing that you mentioned that I'd like to ask about is, is how not everyone has that kind of support. And I know that fact informs your work with the Trevor Project. Um, and you've also spoken about the role of loss as it relates to that work. And you unfortunately lost your brother to suicide when you were young. Um, and we often explore loss as a crucible um, the role of trauma in not only an impetus to act and a motivation to get involved, as it certainly was for you, but beyond that, also something that contributes to how you develop as a leader and as a person, something that perhaps builds and reinforces certain skills and capacities that you bring into being an effective leader and making change. 
How would you find that played a role in your own experience of loss and what that is that that developed in you? Yeah. So um, when I was 15 years old, which is a, a very important age developmentally, when I was 15 years old, I lost my brother to suicide. Um, he was 12 years old. And losing someone to suicide, I think, at any age is unfathomable and something that you can't really wrap your arms or your head around. But losing someone at 15 to suicide, um, it just completely... Uh, for me, I think it completely shifted the trajectory of my life. Uh, I'm a clinical psychologist. I don't know that I would be a clinical psychologist if I had not lost my brother by suicide. And um, needing to understand, wanting to understand, trying to make it make sense uh, is really what led me into mental health. My younger brother died by suicide, but I also have an older brother who um, has what is called schizoaffective disorder which is if you were to take bipolar disorder and schizophrenia and put them together, you get schizoaffective disorder. Um, and so losing one brother to suicide and watching another brother struggle um, with severe bouts of depression and struggle with ongoing symptoms of psychosis, like I... I knew that I needed to be able to help and assist in some way. And so I ended up going down this path of mental health. And so it informed my life in that way. And then it, it also informed, you know, kind of the populations that I've worked with. So I have a, a track record of working with um, kind of acute populations and populations um, that are, experiencing a great deal of distress, right? I work in inpatient psychiatric facilities with people that are actively suicidal, homicidal, or unable to care for themselves due to their mental illness. I've worked in the prison system with individuals with severe and chronic mental illness. I've, I've worked with populations uh, of individuals that are experiencing severe distress, and I think that comes directly from having lost someone that was in severe distress and having watched another person kind of struggle through and forge through severe distress on an ongoing basis. And so it informs my work in that way. Um, and it explains my journey, I think, in that way. In terms of my work with the Trevor Project, having lost my, my brother by suicide is 100% you know, why I'm involved with this organization. He was 12 years old and the Trevor Project is, as you know, um, you know, focuses on, on helping uh, kiddos who are experiencing crisis. Um, and we know that LGBTQ youth are at increased risk. The LGBTQ population in general is at increased risk and LGBTQ youth um, are no different. And uh, so, those two things, I guess my queer identity and having lost someone, a, a, a kiddo, uh, my little brother to suicide really is what led me to working with the Trevor Project. 
You've hit on a couple of things in these first answers that I think are really tied together, both that self-awareness piece connected with seeing people struggle and wanting to help almost leads to this, you know, growth mindset that we have to be better later so that we can help each other. And in fact, in your book, you wrote that you reserve the right to change your mind or to become more deeply aware of your truth. And if that happens, you have to embrace yourself as you know yourself to be. And that really does speak to that understanding and then also this growth that you've gone through. Do you ever feel like you've kind of arrived at the best version of yourself? Or is there always something that pushes you on to be your best and to be better tomorrow? Yeah, there's always something that pushes me on. I would not be where I am today if it weren't for people that held space for me. And uh, so now, you know, I'm, I'm a dad. In a very cool way, I just became a dad right about maybe a year and a half ago. Having said that, my son is 22, (laughs) but I was a mom (laughs) until a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago, when I became a dad, and we sat down and we had the conversation, and he said to me, do you want me to call you dad? (laughs) Uh, He'd known that I was transgender for for some time, but I had always been mom, and um, one day he just had this realization, and he says, wait a minute, (laughs) do you want me to call you dad? And I I said to him, well, you know, I want you to do what's most comfortable for you. I know that I've always been mom, you know, and whatever's best for you. And he says, well, I mean, no, really, I, what's best for you? And then we went back and forth with, well, no, what's best for you? No, what's best for you? And we landed on, we'd give it a try. And I, I became dad um, at that time. And I've been dad ever since. And the reason I bring that up is because when I think about what motivates me to continue forward and to continue to progress and to continue to grow, it's my son. It's being a father. Uh, it's having a safe place for him. When I was a kiddo trying to figure it all out, I didn't have a safe environment to figure that out in. I actually have had the demon of homosexuality cast out of me uh, as as a young adult. Uh, so I, I didn't have a space. And let me let me put air quotes around that. I don't believe that homosexuality is a demon. So to be clear, uh, since you since you can't see me and you're only hearing me, let me, let me be very clear. There's air quotes around that. Um, but I went through this, I guess, exorcism, if you will. I didn't have a safe space to figure it out. It's so important to me to make sure that my kid has a safe place to figure it out, that it fuels me on a daily basis. And I'm so proud. I'm so, I cannot even begin to articulate. So proud of my son who is a member of the queer community and who is, is safely a member of the queer community and can explore that and can figure it all out in a safe place. And that is what motivates me on a daily basis. Like the fact that it's safe for him to clutch his pearls (laughs) is, is what motivates me on a daily basis and, and to want that for everyone. Um, and I think that that brings us to, you know, sometimes we, we meet individuals who have had it rough and they have this strange kind of this need for other people to fight the way that they fought. And I think I'm just not wired that way. I, 
I don't want others to have to fight the way that I fought. I, I want to ease the path as much as, as possible. Um, and so, yeah, however I can grow so that I can make it easier for my kiddo and everyone else's kiddo and everyone that's coming up on, uh, you know, uh, after us, that's what I want to do. And, and that's, that is a journey that is a forever journey. It's remarkable the way you've used your own growth and even your own iterations and evolutions in your journey to support others in theirs. And, and it's clear how you've been able to do that as a parent, uh, how you've been able to do that as part of the Trevor Project, as well as in the rest of your work. And we're curious about that because you talk about becoming more deeply aware of your own truth. And that is so interesting because certainly that is an experience of the LGBTQ plus community, but also the process of coming to know oneself more deeply is a human experience. So how do you utilize what you've learned about that process to help others in your work? Yeah, so I think it's about making it safe to change your mind and to know that the way that I show up today might not be consistent with the way that I showed up tomorrow and uh, or the way that I showed up yesterday. And that doesn't mean that I've been disingenuous. Right? It just means that I'm evolving. And so if I use myself as an example, um, I was a tomboy <laughs> until I had language to be something else, and, until I knew that there was another option. Was I disingenuous in representing myself as a tomboy? No. I was a tomboy, and then I was a dominant or butch lesbian, and then I was like, oh, wait a minute. There's this thing called trans... I, I'm actually transgender. This is... That's what I am. And I had to progress through that, right? I was um, heterosexual until I figured out that maybe that didn't quite make sense. And then I was bisexual and then I was, I was like, well, well I don't know if that really captures it. And then I was pansexual and I was like, I've definitely landed now. I've, I'm, I'm landing the plane at pansexual. That's where I am. And then I realized, nah, I don't know that that's quite the story. And so now I'm omnisexual and in a year and a half, will I be omnisexual? I don't know. But today, I'm omnisexual, right? And so I think it's important for people to be able to um, show up as whoever they are in real time and for that to be okay, right? And so that definitely informs my approach to everyone and everything. Um, yeah, yeah. And I don't know if that answers your question, um, but that that informs my approach to everything and even you know working in mental health you know i i meet people all the time that have unique perspectives unique abilities unique belief systems i don't find myself in a position where i feel like i need to correct that or engage in some type of power struggle because it's okay for you to be whoever you are today you know i don't know if you've ever uh, and I'm not asking, I don't know if you've ever been in or worked on an inpatient psychiatric unit, but it's quite often the case that Jesus and Muhammad and Moses and 
Paul and John and Mary are all in the unit at the same time. Sometimes you've got two or three Jesuses. <laughs> and, and we've all got to agree, on, you know, who's, who's going to be Jesus during the first group? Um, but I don't, I don't feel the need to get into a power struggle because it's, it's okay for you to show up as you are, who you are in this moment, right? So, you know, would you like a graham cracker, Muhammad? You know, let's, let's do this. So the images you create are, are fantastic. And we've talked a little bit up to this point about how you are motivated to grow and to work in these environments and to, to help. But I want to kind of shift towards your book a little bit and ask what motivated you to get into writing? Because you wrote for Forbes for a while, and now you have a book out. Did you consume a lot of material in getting ready for this? Did you kind of survey the landscape and say, there's this void that I need to fill? What was it that made you jump into the book writing arena to share some of these ideas? Yeah, so I've been um, working as a consultant for many years now and working with large companies to help them create safer spaces for their LGBTQ plus employees. Um, it didn't start there. It actually started in the prison system with me um, doing kind of volunteer trainings to try to help create safer spaces in the prison system for LGBTQ inmates. And it kind of grew from there. Um, and so what I found over time was that I was being uh, asked a lot of the same questions and that people were struggling in a lot of the same ways. And I wanted to figure out how I could make information more accessible. Not everyone works for a Fortune 100 or a Fortune 500 company, right? Not everyone has access to subject matter experts that come in to facilitate trainings. And I, and I thought to myself, how can I make this uh, more readily available. And I began to, you know, think of ways that I could get that information out there. It's been interesting because my journey as a writer, I think is unique in that I have, I have written pretty much on all occasions in response to an organization reaching out to me. I know that that's not necessarily the process for some folks. Um, but that's been my process. Um, so Forbes actually reached out to me and said, well, you write for us, right? Um, I, the book that I have now is published by Wiley. Wiley actually reached out to me and said, would you like to write us a book? And so it's been a unique journey in that what I've been doing, quite honestly, is just showing up as my authentic, unique self in the consulting you know, sphere and showing up as my unique, authentic self on social media and then I've had people that have come to me and said, we want to hear more. Let's, let's make this more readily available. And I've been able to enter into these re relationships. What's most important to me is getting this information out in a way that is easily understood and that is readily available. Um, and so I've been so fortunate to have, you know, both Forbes and Wiley see the work that I'm doing and, uh, want to allow me to create space to spread that with others. Well, we also feel fortunate that that space was created and you addressed so many key issues to help people understand this space, to help people serve as allies um, and navigate 
some of these issues. And one of the issues that you wrote about was that of privilege. And you even spoke about what you learned about privilege through your own journey um, and how you've gone about identifying that and making sure that you don't lose sight of it and that you understand it and know how to utilize and leverage it effectively. So as a leader, what do you see as your primary responsibility in using whatever privilege you do possess to help others? I think that I have a responsibility as someone with multiple minority status to create space for other individuals with multiple minority status. The onus is on me to reach back and help others to get through doors that I have gotten through and ceilings that I have broken through. It has not been easy. I, you know, I like to call it the pink and blue ceiling. Um, I definitely, I struggled to advance in my career um, because I was transgender. There's really no other way to tell that story. I, it's not pretty, but it's true. Um, I reached a certain point where organizations said, man, you know, I, you're great, but I don't know that we can let you go to the next level because at the next level you become the face of the organization. And I don't know that we want the face of the organization to be transgender. And so it has been, um, it has been a challenge to get to where I am. And so I think my primary responsibility in this role is to make sure that people that come after me don't have that same challenge. And how do you do that? You go into spaces and you, and you insist, and I mean, insist, right that they create space for individuals with my, with multiple minority status and that they do that in an intentional way, right? That we look at our processes and do our processes engage, whether it's intentional or otherwise, and gatekeeping, right? And do they keep people out that really should be given an opportunity and given a chance? And so I look for every opportunity to open the door for someone else. And I feel like that is a huge responsibility, um, of mine, and it has actually motivated me in terms of my progression. There have been times when I have wanted to throw in the towel, but I think, but if I don't break through this barrier, then that means that this barrier remains in place, and that doesn't just impact me, but that impacts people that come after me. And I use that as fuel to kind of push a little bit further and to go a little bit harder to try to break through this barrier, not just for me, but for those that come you know, after me. So I, you know, I'm proud to say that I'm, uh, you know, the first out black trans man to lead a psychiatric facility in the United States. I'm the first, right? Just the first. I feel a responsibility to, to make sure that it's, that it's just the first. That means there needs to be a second and a third and a 10th and a 12th and a 134th. Right. Um, and that's the case. I'm actually the first transgender man to be on the, um, board of directors for the Trevor project. And it's important to me that that's just a first and that there be another trans man that comes down the pike and that gets that opportunity with such an amazing organization. And so, yeah, I, I feel like I have a responsibility to open up this door for others that are minorities. 
there can be a lot of responsibility in that. And there can also be a lot of burden in that for members of a community when they are put upon to make it right, which is why allies are so valuable in this. And and you've done quite a bit of writing that really helps people be allies. And in fact, in your book, you touch on some of the biggest fear that allies have is of messing up before getting involved in that. And that even those of us that are in those minority communities have that fear as well. How do you encourage people to get past that fear and take that important step into allyship? Yeah, I I think it's important that people understand, um, I don't know, there might be a person out here that doesn't feel this way, but I've not yet to meet this person, and I hope that I never do. I've yet to meet the person who is not okay with the occasional fumble if your intent is to get it right, if your intent is to learn, if your intent is to grow, right? If you have malicious intent, that's one thing. But most people are not malicious, And most people that are on the receiving end of a blunder can stomach that and can extend grace if it's just a blunder and you care enough to get it right the next time. So, um, you know, I, my great, great grandmother, which in my community, we call that your big mama. My big mama used to say that there's a difference between stumbling and laying down right? You only get to stumble, but so many times before you're just laying down at that point. And so when it comes to people erring and not getting it right, we have to extend grace for them to stumble, fumble, you know, drop this, drop that, trip over this, trip over that, as long as that the intention is to get it right. Now, when someone is malicious and it becomes clear that they're not stumbling, but they're just laying down, then our course of action becomes something different. And so I think the way that we help folks and we encourage them to to press through that discomfort is we are intentional in creating spaces where it's okay to stumble, right? And then we say, we will be courageous enough to allow you to stumble if you will be courageous enough to allow you to stumble, and uh, I think that that's kind of what it comes down to. Now, now uh, we're not okay with you just laying down. Big Mama said you can't do that. But you can stumble. <laughs> so your work in allyship has not only helped people overcome those fears and entry into that space, but then also once they are there, what are the specific things that they can do to be an effective ally? And and you have an allyship model that lists several of those things. One that we found particularly interesting and important was the concept of lean back, push forward, which is of course important for an ally, Mm. but also for leaders of any kind, right? That is a leadership skill that is essential. Um, And so we would love if you would share a little bit more about what that means and why it's so essential. Oh, absolutely. Lean back and push forward. So leaning back and pushing forward is is when we are intentional in decentering ourselves. When our privilege has the tendency to place us at the center, right? 
that we are intentional in, in decentering ourselves. And what might that look like? Let's say we're in a meeting and um, they're asking for an opinion of some sort. And the person that they ask, the go-to individual, is someone who is a member of the majority, right? Leaning back is intentionally decentering yourself and allowing someone else space to blossom and to shine and to glow and to show what it is that they bring to bear. The pushing forward is the part that people often forget, right? They remember to decenter themselves, but they're not intentional in pushing someone else forward. And when you do that, what you do is you create a vacuum that is automatically consumed by someone else in a position of authority, which tends to be a member of the majority, right? So we have to not just lean back, but we've got to push someone else forward. So if I go back to that same scenario, that looks like, if someone says to me, hey, Dr. Folks, so what do you think about this idea, right? Because I have a certain amount of privilege as a psychologist, right? As a person in the room with doctor in front of their name, they say, we're going to defer to Dr. Folks. Dr. Folks, what do you think about this? Leaning back is me saying, you know what? We often hear my perspective. Pushing forward is me actually saying and being intentional. You know, I'm, I'm curious. What do you think about this, Sandra? Now I have pushed someone else into the center because if I just lean back and I say, oh, let's not get my perspective again, then what happens is instead of Sandra getting that opportunity, someone else with power and privilege, doctor, whoever else you want to fill in the blank with, kind of comes in and superimposes their thoughts. And so we have to be intentional in pushing someone else forward um, and creating space for other people. And... Uh, which brings me to the thought of it's a, another thing that we discuss in the model is privilege sharing, you know, sharing our privilege with other people. Oftentimes I meet people that are concerned, like, well, if I, if I give away my privilege, then I won't have privilege. And then now I'm in the dumps, which is kind of a cringy thing to say, but I appreciate the honesty. right? Like, but I, I like to say to people, we're not asking you to give away your privilege. I don't even think that's possible. Like you can't, it's not a thing. Like there's not an off switch, but what we are asking you to do is to share your privilege. Right. You know, and, and to make sure that other people have the same access that you have. And, and one of the ways that we share privilege is to lean back and push forward. So AC, in your new book, Transgender Inclusion, you write that we must not make understanding a prerequisite for treating one another with dignity and respect. And a lot of the work you've done has actually been to share that understanding and hopefully make it easier for people to go beyond treating people with dignity and respect and doing even more to be inclusive. As a society right now, we're seeing so much of people choosing not only to not understand, but to not treat one another with dignity and respect. How does the work that you do help us move back towards a model where we can do that work? And how do we get after those folks that say, I don't want to understand. This is scary. Uh, and I feel like I should other you rather than treat you with dignity and respect. So one of the things that I have found to be very impactful in dealing with people that are not seeking understanding is to make very clear how 
the behavior that they're engaging in is causing harm. Because again, most people are not malicious people. And so once you're able to very clearly articulate how what they are doing is actually hurting someone, that's enough to give most people pause. Not everyone. There are some people that are just, you know, there's, let's see, how can I say this? There's some people that are not caring and compassionate. We'll say that. But I think the lion's share of people are. And so when it becomes clear that it's harmful, so for example, when we talk about misgendering, for example, which is, um, you know, for the sake of the audience, when we utilize someone's dead name, which uh, or or I'm sorry, misgendering, which is when we use the pronouns that are not consistent with your gender identity, or when we dead name someone, which is when we use the name that is not your chosen name. We know now, and research shows us very clearly that that is harmful. And that it actually, there's a relationship between that and increased suicidality. Well, once I say that to you, if there's any part of your being that is a good human being, that's enough to give you pause. When I say this isn't just a luxury, this isn't just a nicety, but when you use the wrong name, you place this person at at risk of a very real harm. And I can't imagine that it's your intention to want to harm someone. And I have found that that's a very effective strategy to appeal to the kindness that people have within themselves. Um, you know, we understand that the LGBTQ community is at at risk from a mental health standpoint. The transgender community, even more so. Um, if we were to look at distress, I think there's probably no better way to capture distress, psychological distress, than to look at suicide attempts, right? Uh, not suicidality, not not suicidal ideation, but actual attempts on your life. What we know, what the statistics have have shown us, is that a member of the general population, uh, there's a four to five percent chance, or four to five percent of members of the general population will attempt suicide at some point in their life, which is a very concerning number. Out of a hundred people, four or five of them will attempt suicide at some point in their life. As a member of the general population, if you're lesbian, gay, or bisexual, that number jumps to 15 to 20%. And if you're transgender, 40%, nearly one in two. That's the type of information that I have found is very effective in, in helping people to understand, listen, this is a population that is vulnerable. And when you engage in these behaviors, you put them at greater risk. And to, to humanize people. I have found that to be very effective. Another thing that I'll say um, is it's hard to hate up close. There's power in proximity, right? And so um, I try very hard to make myself accessible to people because as long as you don't know a queer person, as long as you don't know a transgender person, as long as you don't know a black person or a Muslim person or, you know, fill in the blank, it's very easy to other them. And it's very easy to demonize them. It's very easy to view them as less than or inferior or scary or like a boogeyman. But it's hard to hate up close. And when you actually are in relationship with people, it's really tough to carry that on. It's, it, it, you begin to have your own notions, your own stereotypes, your own faulty beliefs challenged. And so those are two ways that I personally uh, try to approach it, to 
explain very clearly the harm that's being caused and to allow proximity to me, right? So that they can say that I, you know, they can see that I'm not a big, scary person. Uh, that's not to say that everyone has the capacity to do that. And that's not what everyone should feel like they have to do. I'm not saying that people should put themselves out there and, and um, allow people close to them that are uh, potentially harmful or feel like they have to do that. But for me, as someone who works in this space, I choose to open myself up and to allow that, that closeness um, to try to push back against some of those, those notions. Yeah, absolutely. In terms of helping people better understand the unique challenges of these communities, I know some of the work that you do is also in the coaching and consulting space, helping leaders who are in the LGBTQ plus community and who are navigating leadership challenges, such as being in the C-suite, for example. From that work, what is it that you've seen that are the major hurdles that LGBTQ plus leaders still need help navigating? Or, or more broadly, what are the major hurdles that you see that you still want to tackle in your work? What remains to be done for you? I think what I see at this, this is really interesting, you know, because this is going to sound a bit paradoxical, but depending on where you are in the country right now, at this moment, the challenge is, is a little different. There are certain places where the challenge is overt and it's in your face and, you know, there's legislation brewing and there are, uh, individuals that are very vocal, um, and, and that are uh, are making it very, very clear that members of the LGBTQ community are not welcome and are not wanted. There are other places where it's much more covert. And I think that where my work lies at this juncture is I'm out there in a very visible way, um, which I think helps to address the overt but I think that there is a need for for folks in the LGBTQ consulting space to begin to focus on the covert. And one of the ways that I'm personally approaching that is I've begun to facilitate trainings on LGBTQ-specific microaggressions, right? It's not the stuff that is just in your face that we all know is just beyond the pale. It's just a bridge too far. But it's the subtle things that that eat away at members of this community that we have to begin to address. And I see a lot of my work moving forward um, addressing those things. It's addressing the, uh, the the subtle microaggressions. It's addressing the assumption that um, a gay man can work long hours because he doesn't have a family to go home to, right? It's addressing, you know, the kind of heteronormative lens or gaze or the cis normative lens or gaze it's it's addressing the the fact that you know the only trans people and non-binary people are the people that are sharing their pronouns and so you know it's putting people in a very uncomfortable position because they're essentially outing themselves in an attempt to not be misgendered um it's it's those subtle things that i feel like are the future of LGBTQ specific consultancy. The stuff that's right in our face um, 
at this point, at this stage in the game, I think that what we can do or what we're best equipped to do is to show up and to be, um, to role model what it is to live and lead successful, healthy lives as members of the LGBTQ plus community. Um, but when I think of the work that I'm doing now with large organizations, it's, it's much more, it's much more subtle. Um, it is, it's the pronouns, it's the chosen name, it's the restroom, it's the changing facilities. Um, it's the health insurance, it's those things uh, that I think that we have begun to transition into at this point. Well, Dr. A.C. Folks, author of Transgender Inclusion, All the Things You Want to Ask Your Transgender Coworker But Shouldn't, we are so thankful you've opened yourself up, as you said, and allowed that closeness and pushed that leadership into the world that allows our community to address both the subtle and the overt things so that we can have a brighter future for that next generation, for your children, for mine, and for all the kids out there to grow up into a world where they don't have to face many of these same hurdles that our generation has. We thank you so much for joining us here on Forged in Fire. Thank you for listening to this episode. The views and ideas expressed by the hosts and guests of this podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the organizations or institutions they represent. Forged in Fire is a collective effort brought to you by a fantastic team of passionate individuals. This podcast is produced and engineered by Frida Castellanos, media production by Christina George, operations by Imogene Thomas, and communications by Chelsea Asplund. Brief Ram serves as executive producer and hosts the show along with Dr. Liz Cavallaro. But we couldn't do this without the inspiration provided by LGBTQ plus leaders around the world working hard to build a better future for all. For more information, visit our website at forgedandfire.org.